uh, let's read together uh, the word of God in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey your master in everything. Those who are are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord you will receive uh, from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for whoever uh, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Let's uh, pray this morning before we get going. Our gracious God and heavenly father, uh, Lord, we just uh, delight ourselves in your goodness Uh, We do thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the Lord of everything, that all things are under your authority and and your control. And so, Lord, as we interact with people on a day-to-day basis, we are not only responsible for how we handle ourselves in our relationships, uh, but we are responsible to you. Uh, We are under your kingship, under your uh, lordship, and you delight in in governing us and and caring for us, even as, as a person cares for their own body. And so, Lord, help us to see uh, these instructions as as not oppressive, but but liberating and and encouraging and just a way that we manifest your lordship in our lives. We pray that you would speak to us where we are and that that your word would be uh, powerful and and effective and help us even as we talk about some of these uh, uh, difficult concepts here of how to how to behave in in godly relationships. And we just thank you for the goodness uh, of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know what your experience was uh, when you got saved. Some of us, I'm sure, got saved when we were very young, like myself. Uh, Some of us perhaps got saved when we were were much older. Uh, Sometimes when we're older and we we become Christians, it, it really leads to uh, by necessity, we just have to restructure so much of our lives. Uh, maybe not for me so much because I was saved when I was five. I, I didn't have a whole lot to, to change. I didn't have, you know, all kinds of bad friends that I'd, I had hardly any friends at the age of five. Uh, but I was recently talking to a friend of mine uh, who got saved uh, just a few years ago. And he has a, a full family and he's had a family for a number of years. So he was a saved later in life as, as an adult. And, and he would tell you uh, that he was, uh, quite honestly, before he was saved, uh, an alcoholic. Uh, you didn't always see it. He didn't always look drunk. But he was the kind of guy uh, that always had at least several beers uh, in his system. And he hung out with the kind of people that would always have several beers in, in his system. I guess you would, you would say, and I guess he would say, so I'm not gossiping, that, that he would have called himself a, a functional uh, alcoholic. And when he got saved, the Lord transformed his life. It, it was a, a difficult process at time. He shared with me what it was like. He, he actually went through some pretty severe withdrawal symptoms. 
But the Lord just laid on a, a real burden in his life that he needed to give up on this alcohol because he was uh, physically enslaved to it. But it led to a restructuring of his life. There were some friends that he could no longer uh, hang out with because whenever they would hang out, it was commonplace to have alcohol around. He even said for a while he just couldn't watch regular sporting activities because that would raise the temptation. He was so used to sitting down on the couch and grabbing a beer or two. And so to sit and watch uh, television and watch those sporting things would lead to a rise again in the temptations. It changed his relationships. He told me uh, last time I saw him that, that one of his childhood friends wanted to get it back in touch. And he wanted to get in touch as well, but he was nervous because he was a very different person now. And that might change the way they behaved together. And they couldn't go out and party like they used to. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it changes the way that we live in this world. And it changes our relationships uh, with people. Uh, I think my friend would say that he's probably a better father now that he's a believer, that he knows the Lord and is not uh, enslaved to his alcoholism anymore. And so we are in a passage of Scripture where we are just given, it's it's almost like a bullet point list of, of instructions on just how relationships in our in our daily lives people that we are in regular contact with how those relationships change or how our actions in those relationships change because now we are walking in a manner worthy of the lord jesus christ so you'll remember back in colossians chapter 2 verse 6 and 7 paul has says therefore as you receive christ jesus the lord so walk in him rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And now we get into the section of Scripture where we, where we get into sort of the nitty-gritty of our daily lives. What does this look like to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus in our marriages, with our children, or children with their parents, or with our employers. Our main point this morning is that being in Christ Jesus will radically transform the way I act in my relationship with others. When Jesus is in me, when I have received Him, it changes the way that I walk because now I walk in Him. And it's going to lead to new patterns of behavior. And it's going to look very different than the way the world lives in family relationships, in relationships with your husband and wife, in your relationships with your job. In this passage, I think there's probably the two most difficult hot-button issues or two of the most hot-button issues uh, that we could we could tackle. And, and I'll be completely frank, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous on tackling because we want to do a good job, but we just can't say everything. One of them is the, the wives submitting to their husband. That can be a real hot-button issue. The other is the issue of slavery here. Is, we'll, we'll answer the question, but just is Scripture endorsing it? Why is Scripture saying this uh, about it? 
And so these can be real uh, landmines to preach on. And we're going to hit both in one sermon. Isn't that exciting? First this morning, uh, family relationships are transformed because of Jesus Christ. So I don't want to lose sight of the big picture. There's instructions to wives. There's instructions to husbands. There's instructions to children. And there's instructions to dads, which we can apply to both mom and dad. So it's, it's not just about one person in the family relationship. It's about everybody. If, if you belong to Jesus and you are in a family, there are instructions for how you should live. So first, the command is, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. So you notice that, that the overarching category for all of these is, is something along the lines is it will either say as is fitting in the Lord or according to the Lord or in the Lord, that, that the reminder is always our ultimate authority is Jesus. And so we live this way in the world or in our relationships because we are, we are under Jesus Christ. This is not about putting wives under the thumb of their husband. This is about everyone, husbands, wives, children, uh, bosses, employees, all of us living under the Lord Jesus Christ. He has set us free. He is our new uh, master and we walk in him. Therefore, we are to live in such a way as is fitting in the Lord. Obviously, the, 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 the statement, wives, submit to your husband, uh, can be very hard to, to hear and, and understand in the 21st uh, century. It, it does not mean, and, and I'll probably end up saying just as much what it doesn't mean as what it does mean, it does not mean that wives become a, a doormat for their husbands. It, it does not mean that, that wives become uh, demeaned or somehow less of a, a human being. And in fact, the picture in Scripture is that first, as human beings, each one of us is made in the image of God. And so our status is equal in that respect. We are all equally partakers of the image of God. Now, of course, in our sin, for all of us, that is, that is corrupted and, and such, but we still bear the image of God. And second, even more so, as all of us as Christians inside the church, we are all one in Jesus Christ. So that Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that if we have put on Christ, we are one in Christ, that we, there are neither male or female, neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free. Now, that doesn't mean those relationships don't exist, but what it does mean as we gather as the body of Christ, there is a, a wonderful equality amongst us, that one person is not better than another, that none of us here have a higher status, uh, particularly before the Lord Jesus Christ. So in terms of status, there is not a, a level where one is inferior and, or others are superior. But there is, in terms of our relationships, just a general ordering. Children are children and they're not parents. Parents are parents and they're not children. There's an order to the way that God establishes relationships. This is very similar 
to what we see in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Philippians chapter 2 says to, to all believers in chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So we are to conduct ourselves as a whole in humility where we understand that other people aren't better than us. And the example that we are given in Philippians chapter 2 is the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we are told, Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then verse 6, Paul says, Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count this equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be used to his own advantage. So in the relationship between uh, Jesus and God the Father, there is a genuine equality. They are both truly God. Uh, one is not better than the other. The one is not more God than the other. There is this beautiful uh, equality where each of them receive honor and glory uh, and worship. And yet in the relationship that they have with each other, there is a general ordering. There is God the Father and God the Son. And in that respect, the the relationships can't be switched around. The Son cannot become the Father. The Holy Spirit cannot become the Father or the Son. They are distinct persons, though they are part of one God. So in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. And notice this, the head of Christ is God. So when it comes to marriage, there is this beautiful equality that that people in the marriage, there is not one who is superior and one who is inferior. They are equal before God. But there is a basic, simple order to the relationship. We wouldn't say that Jesus is somehow less or inferior or doesn't deserve as much worship because he's the son. In the same way, we're not saying here that women are less or should be trampled or should be put under the thumb of men in a marriage relationship. Submission then means acknowledging this ordering without demeaning yourself or even your husband's role. Submitting does not mean then that the wife has no voice or opinion or that she can't offer wisdom and guidance. Sometimes we look to the past and we use the past and not scripture to define how a marriage should work. And sometimes in the past in human history, there are awful times when when women were demeaned in marriage. We're not trying to get back to that. We're not trying to go back to the idealized uh, 1920s uh, housewife or something like that who's only good for for cooking and, and cleaning and taking care of the kids. In fact, if you read in Proverbs 31, you know the, the Proverbs 31 woman who's that ideal uh, godly woman? It says two times that she is a woman of strength. It says also that she considers a field and goes out and buys it. It says that the heart of her husband trusts her. So there's a, there's a measure of, of um, you know, she takes the world head on. Uh, she's not 
tucked away in in the back of the house cooking and and only doing the cleaning. I've often wondered today, and in some Christian marriages, how a husband would respond if the wife went out and bought a field or if the wife went out uh, and bought a car. I said one time in a sermon preaching on Proverbs 31 or referring it, you know, sometimes in a marriage, uh, the woman is just better at cars or maybe she's better at haggling and and getting a deal. And and so the woman uh, being in a marriage and being submissive to her husband, it doesn't mean she can't work with him. And maybe she negotiates with the car dealer because he's just a pushover uh, when it comes to, to those kinds of deals. There is a biblical way of submitting. And that's acknowledging the headship role. That's acknowledging that the husband is accountable to the Lord for spiritual leadership. He's especially to be caring and and guiding uh, in in his relationship. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself, its Savior. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But God designed women to be helpmates and that's not a demeaning term Uh, there was a a wonderful sweet lady uh, and she said this as a joke she's passed on and gone to be with the lord now she used to say the husband may be the head of the home but i am the neck that turns the head Uh, and she said that kind of tongue-in-cheek but but she also there were some things her husband was a, a wonderful sweet man uh, but, but after she passed, we just wondered if he could even uh, get himself dressed in the morning and get food on his plate. And, and she was just a, a wonderful, sweet lady in, in doing all of that for him. And yet it was never demeaning. It was never, well, this is all I can do. She, she very much uh, was a wonderful, godly woman uh, submitting to her husband and yet not being demeaned. Sometimes in marriage relationships, sin can disrupt uh, the relationship as it goes on. Sometimes, and, and believe me, I'll have things to say about men later, so don't think, ladies, that I'm just picking on the wives at the beginning. But sometimes uh, ladies in the marriage relationship can become bossy or, or assertive. And maybe you've heard the, the, the statement, uh, and maybe you've said this, you know, we know who wears the pants in that relationship. That, that the husband is, is undercut constantly by his wife rather than encouraged and, and respected. And I've seen situations in, in marriages where, where the wife says, I want my husband to lead. I want him to show spiritual authority. And then every time he goes to do something, she makes him let it be known that that's not right. Oh, he didn't do it the right way. Oh, he can't ever get anything done. And that can undercut the man. That can actually just kind of chip away at his self-esteem women you can you can either um well think of like an eagle that soars and you have the potential to be the the wonderful wings under your husband when the relationship is going well the the air that just lifts him up and and encourages him to be uh more godly and then there's in proverbs the the picture of the contentious woman where it actually says it's better to live on the corner of a roof in the house, or then it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a quarrelsome woman. So scripture gives us all of these pictures of, of wives that are, that are not lowered in their status, 
but are submitting in a way that is, that is godly, even as Christ in his earthly life submits to God his Father and isn't less of a person. Now, husbands, uh, now it comes to us. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Uh, the command is for husbands to love their wives, and it, it almost seems obvious to us. Well, of course, that's what husbands do. I think what we have to, to, to recognize, and just, just think about this for a moment. In the 21st century, as we read these verses, probably the one that, that grates us the most, that's the hardest to get our minds around, that we might not even like, is this idea of wives submitting to their husbands. In the first century world, the one that would have been the most shocking would have been husbands love your wives. And why do I say that? Because in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for wives to be literally second class citizens, if even that. It was okay in the ancient world. It was common practice to say that that wives were for bearing children, but you can go out and you can have a mistress and she can be the love of your life, the romance. And so saying to a, a group of former pagans who had friends that still lived this way, who perhaps themselves were still fighting the temptations to win this way, this was a radical transformation to say, husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Uh, whether that's uh, in yelling or how you talk to them, you could even translate this, do not embitter them. Don't treat them in, in such a way that they are stewing uh, inside. Uh, the husband is, is not to act in a way that creates a, a resentfulness. So in other words, the husband is not to be jaunting himself around and, and saying, uh, you need to submit to me, woman, and, and I'm going to watch football this afternoon and you need to, to bring me my sandwich because you're my wife. The husband is supposed to be caring with his wife in the same way that Christ is caring with the church. It, it kind of ups the ante because sometimes as guys we can just have those those rough edges. We can just kind of be blunt. We can treat our wives like one of the guys. And we have to be tender and caring. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor with spot and, or, or, yeah, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but, but nourishes it uh, and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. There's two images here. One, you think of how tender and caring Jesus is with the church. Uh, that when we're hurting, he consoles us. That when we were dead in our sins, uh, he didn't come down harsh with us, but he was caring and picked us up. And, and through the work on the cross, he, he made us to be spotless. Husbands, we are supposed to be caring for our wives in the same way. Different wives have different personalities, and we need to make allowances for that and understand our wives 
Some wives love it when their husband is very tender. Other wives are, are, are very independent, and we have to encourage them to flourish in their, in their marriages and, and stand behind them when they have uh, desires to do something or engage in something. The other example is how you care for your own body. You know how you feed your own body well? We just, had, uh, we just grilled some steaks last night. You know, we, we took care of our bodies last night. And you, uh, you know when you're sore, you, you, rub, you rub that muscle. In fact, my wife teases me sometimes that, that maybe you guys have had this in your marriage, that, that men could never ha- handle childbirth because they can never handle the pain. And so when the guys have the aches, they're like, oh, man, oh, this is sore. Oh, I need it, need it rubbed out. And when you have that, guys, how do you take care of your body? You, know, you, you give it the best, right? In the same way, husbands are to care for their wives in that same attitude. You give it the best. You invest in her. Your job is not to lord authority over her. Your job is not to to toe a line around and say, well, you need to submit to me now. But it is to treat her as, as Christ treats his beautiful bride, the church, as he cares for her. Um, a friend of mine says this. Well, let me start with this. Christ's goal was to so care for his bride that she'd be spotless and transformed in the same way the headship in in the marriage that the husband offers is not authoritarian or to repress her. A friend of mine wrote this on on a blog post on the internet. He wrote, when a man fulfills the role that God has called him to in marriage, his wife flourishes. She will have room to grow. There will be grace for her to deal with past hurts in her life. She will be able to use her gifts to bless her family and the world around her. She will have freedom to be who God has called her to be. I think that's a beautiful image of a picture of a Christian marriage. We live in a culture, in a day and age, where one marriage is being redefined. It doesn't have to be between a man and a woman anymore. We're living in a day and age, and and that, by the way, is, of course, not right, but we're living in a day and age where even a man and a woman in a marriage are redefining gender roles. And there are some things in the Bible that they're trying to get rid of. But we need to be careful that we stick to what the Word of God says says we go back and we say what does a christian marriage look like and it is going to be radical from our culture but it's also i think going to be a radical change from some of the things we may have witnessed in the past there were marriages in the past whether you go back a hundred years or a thousand years where the man was repressive of women And the Bible holds it before us that that's not right either. Our target is not the way the culture is going. And our target is not the way it's always been done. Our target is, what does Scripture say is the godly way to live out a marriage? Moving along into the family relationships, and and I'll go a little bit faster here. Um, Children, uh, obey your parents. Uh, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So here again, uh, the motivation is, is that 
when a child lives in their, their parents' home and they are obeying the parents, it, it's not just pleasing the parents, although if, if you've ever had kids in your house, you know it very much pleases you when they listen to what you say. But even more, it, it pleases the Lord. Encourage your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, that when they are living in the Lord and obeying their parents, they're not just doing what is right for their family, they are honoring the Lord. That even the most little child can serve the Lord inside the family. Parents, do not mistreat your children. Look at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6, 4 says similarly, Fathers, do not provoke provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction in the Lord. Your relationship with your children should be one where you're caring for them, where you're nurturing them, where they're not regularly getting discouraged. There's a lot of practical ways that this can be worked out. Ask yourself questions like, do I set impossible standards for my children? It's a good thing to want our children to excel. And sometimes that means setting some goals that we, we think our children, or our children think they can't do. Uh, one of my daughters gets very discouraged very quickly. And when it comes to doing homework, right away she says, I can't do it, I can't do it. And so we do have to nudge her along and say, you can do this. And we set the goal and what seems high for her. And the one time she was doing her homework and she says, I just can't do it anymore. My eyelashes hurt. Uh, that, that gives you a, the idea of the level the excuses rise to. But the flip side of it is, and particularly in today's world, we can be such, parents can be so driving their children that they discourage them. The parent that wants nothing but their child to become a football star or that prized musician And all they do is harp on the children to meet these goals, to practice, and the children lose the enjoyment of it. And the children never hear from their parents, I'm proud of you and how you work. We need to be careful that as parents we are setting an example of godliness. Imagine how it would be if if the Lord Jesus or God, our Heavenly Father, only ever pointed out our faults. And all he ever did was, was harp on us. And, oh, even as a Christian now, you're just, you're just a failure. Is that the way God deals with us? No. He's gentle. He's tender. He, he sends the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to, to build us up, to, to motivate us. He has standards, high standards. He has ways that he wants us to live. But he knows we fail. And he knows we we mess up in our Christian walk. And he's tender. And he's encouraging. And he forgives us when we're wrong. And he steers us back onto the path so that we might walk in his ways. God, our Heavenly Father, is the perfect Father. And as parents, we need to learn to emulate his characteristics. You can push your kids so hard that they get exasperated in you. That you provoke them to anger that they become discouraged our children need to hear from us that we love them 
But I think the second most important thing you can say to your kids is that you're proud of them. That means a lot to a little kid. When they're trying really hard at something and they know they're coming up short, maybe they're not excelling at a sport that they'd like or they got some bad grades and, and, and you know, there are appropriate times for discipline. But can you sit down with them and say, I love you. I'm proud of you. When they're working hard, particularly when they've, you know they've struggled with something and now they're working hard at something, instead of saying, well, you're still not quite there yet, do you have a word of encouragement for you, for them? Do you, I'm learning myself. I still have four kids in the house, and so I'm learning to do this myself. But one thing I noticed, and we've been really trying to get keep the kids to keep their play areas and their toys looking at least half decent. Uh, one time at our old house, I stepped on a on a uh, little matchbox car that somebody had left out. Oh, it sent my temper through the roof. The kids were all in bed, and I picked up that matchbox car and I threw it across the room. I'm like, ah! But I've learned, you know, the old saying: you can. Um, attract more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. There are times where you do correct your kids. Hey, you need to do this. Hey, you didn't do this. But I've also learned where there's times when even when they're doing what they're expected to do, like cleaning up after dinner, a simple thank you that you appreciate that they're doing their job, that you appreciate they're not complaining this time when they're doing it. Sometimes in the long run, that goes much farther than the correction as well. So that's the first area this morning on how does Jesus Christ change our relationships inside the family. The second area is how does Jesus Christ, how are work relationships transformed by Jesus Christ? Now, admittedly, Paul is talking here in a context where, where work relationships involved servants, slaved, indentured servants, and all kinds of of various uh, things in the ancient world that we don't have today. Uh, most of our jobs are, except for the fact that we need to pay our bills, it's, it's voluntary. I can decide I want to work here. We enter into a mutual agreement that they will pay me this much and I'll do this. Paul is talking in a setting where, where that is not always the case. And sometimes some of the believers got saved and they were slaves when they got saved. And so the question becomes, well, how do you live now in that relationship, even though it's not ideal? Do you go out and revolt and say, well, slavery is wrong and and I'm going to rebel? That would make Christianity look bad and that would make Jesus Christ look bad. Or do I live in that relationship and work for the Lord, even while we hope that's not the way the relationship continues? Let me say this. First question, does the New Testament endorse slavery? And the reason I want to, this is maybe a little bit of a a sidetrack, but the reason I want to answer this is you will find in, in our day, you will find a lot of people that are hostile to the Bible because they don't know what the Bible says about certain things. Uh, they don't know what the Bible, well, the Bible endorses slavery. How can you read a book like that? First, we need to start by recognizing, I'm just going to kind of try to answer that question then. First, we need to start by recognizing that slavery in the New Testament times was not the same practice uh, 
in its entirety anyways. It was not the same as we've experienced in our history, particularly in the United States. So, for example, in the Old Testament, if, if a person was in debt, they could sell themselves into slavery. They didn't have chapter 13 or chapter 11 bankruptcy. But old, the Old Testament limited how much you could do. In fact, you had to be set free after seven years. And there were very strict rules about how you had to treat someone that had a debt to you and had to sell themselves into slavery and, and be your labor for a period of time. Second, in Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7, kidnapping people and selling them into slavery was a penalty worthy of death. So that the way that most slaves in American history were brought to this country is completely condemned by the Old Testament. The Bible did not endorse some of those things. And and 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul speaks harshly against men who are enslavers, men who go out and just kidnap some people or capture some people and sell them off into slavery. The Bible makes it very clear that that is wrong. In fact, it gives it the harshest penalty in Old Testament Israel, which is death. In Paul's day and age, the slavery that was going on was somewhat different. First, it wasn't based on race. There was, in the, old, in, the, in the world of Paul and the Greeks and the Romans, people from anywhere could be a slave. You find yourself into debt, sometimes you went into slavery to pay off that debt for a period of time. You could sell yourself into slavery and later regain freedom. So you could say, look, I'll work, I have a debt, I'll work for you for seven years, this will pay off the debt, then you'll let me go. And you know, they would, so to speak, shake on that agreement, and then that's how it would be for that period of time. Uh, third, slaves could, in the ancient world, be highly trained and very educated. Sometimes slaves were, were almost so well-educated, it would be like the equivalent of having a Ph.D., and they would go and they would work for a certain household as a slave to raise the children. And, and for them, it was actually a, a, an opportunity for economic advancement because it was like having stable employment. And they're working with, with the kids to raise them up and train them and, and almost being like a, a private tutor. In the ancient world, slaves could even own slaves. And then emancipation in, the, in that world was possible and it was practiced at various times. So the slavery that we're talking about in many cases, although it was harsh and, and we don't want to sugarcoat slavery in the ancient world, it was very different from the history that America has with slavery and kidnapping people and making it uh, based on race. Scripture points us in the direction of slaves being set free. Paul tells slaves in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Were you a slave or a bondservant when you became a Christian, when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But he also says, But if you can, gain your freedom and avail yourself to the opportunity. Sometimes things were so tough in the ancient world that you were actually better taken care of by the family whose household you were a part of as a slave. You had 
food, you had access to medicine, you had a roof over your head, and if you became a free person, you had none of that and no means of employment. The book of Philemon that Paul writes is written about a slave who ran away, found Paul, got saved, and Paul knew his master. The master's name was Philemon. The slave's name was Onesimus. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with these words. He says in Philemon's verse 15, For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is saying, here is this slave that used to be your slave. And he is coming back to you as a believer. And you are a believer. And you need to treat him as equals in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how radical that is for the relationship. Think of Philemon. If he's a prominent businessman, someone hears that his slave came back and they go, oh good, didn't you beat that guy and, and give, punish him and show him what he had coming to him? And imagine if Philemon said, no, no, I forgave him. Imagine the shock of a, a pagan slave. You did what? Philemon could say, I forgave him because there's an even greater one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who forgave me. Imagine the impact that has. Imagine how over time that begins to change society. Imagine a, a slave who, who gets saved and he's working with a master who is, who is not a Christian. And the slave says, you know what? My ultimate master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to serve Jesus. And that means I'm going to work my hardest, the best that I can for this slave owner. The master is going to notice that. Imagine a master who gets saved and he has slaves and suddenly he starts treating his slaves better. Maybe he gives them better food. Maybe he's less harsh with them. He doesn't do the things he used to do when he was an unbeliever. Imagine the impact that that's going to have on the slaves in leading them to Christ in transforming the world around them. It's worth noting that in various times in human history, it was the Christians that were leading the charge to get rid of slavery because they were realizing that people were made in the image of God and that if people were believers even more, they were one in Christ. This is what Paul is doing in Colossians 3. Now, admittedly, I think all of the applications that we can make here are to how we should work in our places of employment or if we are a master or a boss, how we should treat those in our employee, uh, who are our employees. But I want to deal, I want to show you that Paul takes on this issue of slavery in a way that would transform the world 
because Jesus Christ is about changing lives. Look at these verses with me. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So in your job place, in your place of employment, why do you work for your boss? Do you work for him because you want a good paycheck? Why do you work hard for your boss? Is it just so you can sort of, you know, the, the phrase, so you can brown nose your boss, so you can kiss up to him and, and make a good impression, but, but secretly outside of work you, you talk bad about him? Oh, that stupid boss, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or do you do it in such a way that it's not about just currying his favor or looking good on the outside, but it's actually about saying, You know, I don't really work for you, even though I work for you. I work for the Lord. The Lord is the one who rewards us. We get our paychecks every week or biweekly or monthly or whatever your pay schedule is on. But notice what Paul says in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone treats you wrong at work, a boss or a co-worker. Don't settle to get back at them. The warning here, the reminder here is that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. The Lord will settle the debts. The Lord will take care of of vindicating you if you're wrongly treated in your place of employment. Your job is not to get even, but to say, how do I represent Jesus? If you're a a boss, verse 1 of chapter 4 speaks right to that. Masters, treat your slaves. Or we could say, bosses, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. It's interesting that in James chapter 1, James has, or James chapter 5, excuse me, he has some of the strongest rebukes for employers who cheat their employees out of their wages. We're all accountable to God, and we're all accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. The picture here in the passage that we've been dealing with then is simply this that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, It changes the way you walk in your relationships. And it's a radical transformation. The world is going to look at it and see something is different. Imagine the housewife who gets saved and suddenly she stops grumbling to the ladies about how awful her husband is. She stops gossiping about him behind her back. The husband who who begins to be transformed by the Lord... And, and instead of uh, talking bad about his wife to the, to, to the other guys, is loving her, cherishing her, complimenting her, praising her, maybe even bringing her flowers. At first, maybe the guys will start to nag him. Ah, you're just, ah, yeah, whatever, buddy. But after a while, they'll notice something is different. The employee who begins to work hard, the employer who begins to take better care of his employees. All of it is fruit of knowing Jesus. And it leads to a testimony. It 
honors the Lord and it, and it puts into place the kind of radical transformation that, peop, that, that Jesus wants to do in the lives of people. How does Jesus change your relationships? Is there some relationship in your life that you need to consider and look at and say, you know what? I'm living like everybody else around me. I need to be more like Christ in this relationship. Let's close uh, in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, come into your presence today and uh, dealing with a number of of different issues from your word, almost at times uh, a hodgepodge of issues, bringing these things all together. But we are reminded of how you transform lives, and it leads to a radical obedience to you in our relationships. We ask that you would work that out in our hearts and in our lives, that you would heal families, that you would heal marriages, that you would heal relationships that we might have at work. Help us to to love you and serve you and be a light for you in our day-to-day lives. In your name we pray. Amen.